0: Two and a half admins, episode 140. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary Clara plug is comparing modern open source storage solutions. OpenZFS versus the rest.
1: Yeah, so we give a quick rundown of some of the other options out there, like Ceph and Gluster, and compare when each might be more useful. So if you've been interested in the two, check them out. Alright, well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then,
0: and let's start with a vague warning about an Amazon compromise. This is a Mastodon post that has gone viral, seemingly, and it's by a guy called Dick Morell, and he's like, for those who trust me, go to your Amazon account and sign out of all your devices, everything, everywhere, all your Echoes, and uh, it's it's very alarmist and very light on detail. I smell bullshit, quite frankly, but... uh, I could be wrong. We're recording this on Wednesday. So by the time this comes out on Thursday, maybe I will be proven wrong about that, but we'll see.
2: I would say rather than very light on detail, very non-existent on detail, it's entirely possible that uh, this Dick Morrell guy genuinely is an infosec researcher who found some kind of genuine vulnerability that he has reason to believe has been exploited in the wild or is so severe that you shouldn't take any risks and yada yada. But This smells a lot more like that one kid that wanted everybody to take him seriously in grade school. I had a bad feeling about this one from the get-go, but when I got down into his replies and uh, he he started making all these braggadocio claims to somebody saying that you should trust me because two billion people get their security from me every day. I'm just like, oh, come on, buddy. No. Yeah,
1: not much to go on here trying to claim it's proactive disclosure, coordinated disclosure, which, you know, is the way it should be done, probably. But even then, I think you can give a little more detail. I'm guessing it's actually something like, you know, some app has been going around and getting access to people's accounts and you want to flesh it out. But I don't know it's worth making everybody go and reset every Amazon device and so on.
2: We also just, we don't know if there's anything at all legitimate to this or not. The point about this being responsible disclosure, well, that's just the thing. Responsible disclosure doesn't mean going out to the entire Internet and being like, hey, guys, I got a tip for you. You should totally do like this thing. I can't tell you about the thing. I mean, that's not responsible disclosure. That is the opposite of that. That is telling every black hat out there just as much as you tell every potentially innocent person, oh, you should log out of your Amazon devices because blah. You're also telling every black hat and script kitty out there. Well, maybe there's something you really ought to be looking at that, you know, this would be the way to mitigate that vulnerability. And again, that's assuming that there's a here here that I'm just not completely convinced of. Well, apart from
0: anything else, I've heard people say that if this is an ongoing situation, then changing
1: a password now is not
0: likely to even help the situation.
1: Well, from the sense of it, it's, it's not password related so much as authorized devices. He
2: does also go on to recommend replacing passwords. It's, yeah, but is that, is that just general security practices that, you know, you should replace the relatively frequently anyway? Well, again, who knows, because this is just some random nonsense without any yeah. detail whatsoever that is not responsible disclosure. One way you could look at this is basically InfoSec Pascal's wager. Pascal's Wager is the old philosophical saw that, you know, even if you're not a religious person, then it makes sense to behave as though you did belong to the prevailing religion of the land, Christianity in this case, because if it turned out the Christians were right and you were wrong, then you would go to hell and nobody wants to go to hell, right? And the idea is, well, there's no downside, so you should always take Pascal's Wager, but, I mean, that's a little ridiculous. And no, it is actually, as it turns out, not a good idea to do random laborious things that could as easily open a vulnerability as close one just because somebody chicken littled little over on the other side of the internet. Yeah, at some point, especially with responsible
1: disclosure, if there's something there, then Amazon will tell people to reset their devices or just reset the devices for people.
2: Exactly. And in the meantime, with absolutely no detail given, For all we know, there could be a CVE out there that benefits greatly from people logging out and the vulnerability in question doesn't come into play until you need to log a device back in. Who knows? We have no detail. So at this point, taking that guy's advice is just doing a random thing to your computer because some random person on the internet said you should. And we don't really advise that kind of cargo cult response.
0: You're telling me that his 200 hours of podcasting it's not uh, enough to take him seriously. He makes all sorts of claims like that. And uh, I tried to find a link to this guy's podcast and he claims to be a professional podcaster. And I just, I couldn't even find any of his shows, man.
2: Not that I looked very hard, to be fair. You looked harder than I did. <laughs> Again, once, once I got to that line about 2 billion people a day rely on me to get their security every day. I was just like, what? No, 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 we're done.
1: So I found the website but it's like a service about podcast. It doesn't actually seem to have a podcast. Yeah, it's more like if you
0: want to make a podcast, then we will help you with that rather than here's my shows, like on my website. I mean, I'll help you with a podcast if you want, but I will also point you at this show, Late Night Linux, etc. So it's a bit strange.
2: It also got my attention when the guy was like, you know, Google me if you if you don't know. And I had never heard his name before so I did and like the top 8 results were various dead dudes in their obituary so I'm just, <laughs> uh, buddy
0: Molvad VPN was subject to a search warrant customer data was not compromised this is a very short post by Mulvad who say that the Swedish authorities raided their data center tried to seize some machines but then Molvad said no our policies are such that there's no customer data on here, so you have no right to seize these machines. And uh, so the
1: authorities left empty-handed. I'm a little unclear, what, after demonstrating that this is indeed how our service works, and them consulting the prosecutor, they left without taking anything, how much of that was they just believed them? <laughs> I'm not saying that's not how the service works, and, and you know this is how this was supposed to play out for them. I'm just surprised that the National Operations Department of the Swedish police Accepted whatever evidence they posed. Because I'm sure that if the same thing happened in the US, the police would be like, get out of our way. We're taking everything no matter what. And maybe you can have it back if you prove that there's nothing on it.
2: I think there may be a uh, slight difference between American and Swedish law in play there.
1: (laughs) Yes. And I think in particular, if the search warrant was for specific data and they could prove that data wasn't there, then the search warrant didn't apply. And that might be the case, in which case it's pretty embarrassing for the police and the prosecutor that they didn't know that what they were asking for didn't exist.
2: Maybe a demonstration really was an order. Maybe they didn't believe it. And then the MOLVAD folks demonstrated, like, look, here are what logs we have. And it doesn't give the information that you're looking for, period. Your stuff's not here. Here's a demonstration of everything that we've said about our servers for the last 14 years actually being true. If you had somebody in the investigating unit that, was actually qualified to be working that warrant, I could absolutely see that being able to just like, no, let me demonstrate what you're looking for is not here. And like, that's it. And we're done. I guess the interesting question is just whether you get somebody actually qualified to process that warrant processing that warrant or not, because like here in South Carolina, we have some police divisions that are actually quite InfoSec competent. For some reason, they never seem to be the ones that are involved with infosec-related crimes. But you know that that division does exist.
1: Yeah, I just I expect it's harder to prove that something isn't there than to prove that it is. So no matter how much I show you, he's like, yeah, but maybe there's something I can find if you let me sit at the keyboard, kind of thing.
0: Maybe they did. Maybe they let them just have at it.
1: Yeah, well, the problem with that is if you let me have at it, I would put something there that would make it so that I could get logs from now on. <laughs> are you telling us that you're a dirty cop, Alan? No, just that if, if you gave me access to a system I wasn't supposed to have access to, I might leave something behind.
2: Well, I don't think Joe meant to suggest that, you know, give them access to the system and, all right, let's everybody get up and go take a dump, <laughs> give this guy <laughs> half an hour unsupervised. Right. I, and I don't think that was ever the plan. No.
0: Yeah, but they may have just given them a console and just said, what are you looking for? See if you can find it.
1: Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting, the headline. The thing worked the way it was supposed to.
0: Yeah, I guess. And uh, this is presumably why Mozilla trusts them enough to effectively rebrand Mulvad as Mozilla VPN and shove it down your throat every time you update Firefox.
2: I hesitate to put any motivations in Mozilla's mouth. I'm not real sure why they do a lot of the things they do. But I will say this is absolutely an indication that Mulvad is who they've been saying they are for you know the last 14 years or so. And if you need a third-party commercial VPN provider, it's probably a good place to look.
0: Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide, and Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero-trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication, and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. So visit collide.com slash 25A to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. There's a piece on the register about a new SSD that claims
2: it can protect you against ransomware using AI. I'm just not having this one. AI on board the SSD keeps you safe from ransomware. Sure it does, buddy. Sure it does. (laughs) The way I would assume this works... Is it doesn't? (laughs) Right.
1: Uh, It has some heuristics to notice when all your data seems to be getting overwritten sequentially and stopping it somehow, I guess, turning read-only at that point. Well, that's exactly how it claims to work, yeah. Except how big of a pattern does it have to be before it decides it's ransomware? Because if it goes off prematurely, then it isn't useful in production because it keeps going read-only. If it doesn't go off prematurely, then eventually... It, you know, it's like, okay, you saved half my files, thanks, but what about the other
2: half? Well, it also claimed at some point to mitigate against issues of exfiltration as well as you know, just the simple encryption. And I'm like, again, I'm like, come on, man, pull the other one, it's got bells on.
1: Well, yeah, I think for exfiltration, it's just that it's a self-encrypting drive as well. And I guess that doesn't help though if you don't have to unlock it to boot. You know, You can do most of this stuff in software without needing special hardware for it just like basically a virus scanner or whatever. If it can detect the pattern and catch it, then maybe you can do something about it. But short of something like snapshots, where you have the data from before to roll back to, once you detect it, then the ransomware still got the first X percent of your data before the detection was certain and went off.
2: Yeah, and it's just not that simple to say, oh, well, we just look for a pattern of you know sequentially written. Well, it's not... Always sequential, you know, not not every ransomware package hits the data in the same order or in the same way or with the same pattern.
0: Yeah, some of this ransomware just takes the cushions from the couch, not the whole thing, right? The, uh, yep. Just the, the first couple of bytes of each file.
1: The one I saw hit a customer, encrypted the first megabyte, another megabyte, 33% into the file, and the last megabyte of each file. It could blast through a large number of files much more quickly than of one that tried to encrypt everything, which would get bogged down on a whole bunch of really large files. But yeah, if that ends up tricking this SSD or if it looks for that specific pattern, then the next version of that malware will just do it slightly differently. You know, select a random amount between 256K and 1.5 megabytes or something and pick the middle point randomly as well by hashing the file size to get a pattern for their decryptor not to have to know any information.
2: And how does this work if the magical AI SSD is part of an array? That's certainly going to affect the pattern of data being read or, you know, read from or written to it. I just, I'm not having this one. There are systems that do function in similar ways to the claims being made for this SSD, but the logic doesn't live on board an SSD because why on earth would it? You know, it it lives out on servers that monitor network access and, you know, look for flow patterns and train daily on your data. Like a, a key part of this pitch when it's reasonable is always that, you know, it's training on your data so it can learn what is an unusual looking access pattern and it can raise those patterns to the attention of human blue team operators who can then look at it and say, oh no, that's normal, just, you know, Bob over there in accounting got like super divorced. So he works at three in the morning sometimes now, you know, or whatever, or maybe it really is a problem. But part of the thing here is that the logic doesn't live on the firmware of an SSD. That's just weird. And the other part of it is that you have to have human attention. You have to have a trained staff that's working with this thing and monitoring it and investigating the things that it uncovers.
1: Yeah, because there's two big things here. If there's not a human involved in the kill chain or whatever, then if it goes off incorrectly, a false positive, then it's just read-only at all your data. Mm-hmm. And how do you unread-only it? And if there is a way to do it that doesn't involve opening the machine or whatever, how does the ransomware not able to do it too? Well, these problems are all solved by the fact that
0: this runs in conjunction with some software that is only available for windows on this nvme drive this is aimed at compliance checkboxes as far as i can see it's just trying to sell people on this idea of oh this will stop ransomware on your windows client machines
2: it's aimed at ignorant wallets as far as i can tell (laughs) well yeah exactly
1: you know i've spent quite a bit of time looking at how this can be detected by using snapshots and looking at how they grow, but not just that, because like we talked about, some ransomware is only going to touch a little bit of each file. And so maybe the snapshot's not going to get that much bigger. And so then we get into deeper stuff of like looking at the list of files that has changed. And if it's, you know, every single file in a directory unexpectedly of, you know, they're not new files. It's just, we can't, someone came in and touched all these files and they appear to be walking them sequentially or something. Then that's maybe a pattern you can pick up and having to look over larger and smaller frame frames at the same time. Like, okay, we see this pickup and it started here, but if we go back further, we, you know, is this amount of churn normal? And then many factors like that, but it it turns out it's not very easy to be absolutely sure that you've detected ransomware. And that's to Jim's point. That's why there needs to be humans involved. Somebody has to get this alert and decide what to do about it. Because if you let the computer decide the risk of it being wrong and Taking down production by making things read only is pretty high. And that only has to go off uh, incorrectly a couple times before the execs are like, get that thing out of here. You know, it's randomly throwing grenades into our production and we can't have that.
2: Don't forget, folks, AI is stupid. (laughs) It's not particularly trustworthy. It is certainly capable of learning to detect patterns and learning what is usual and what is unusual. But ultimately, throwing an AI at your network unsupervised to decide what is or is not malware is a lot like, you know, throwing a toddler at it. Okay, great. So you gave the toddler a month to decide what looked normal and what looked not normal, but do you really want to give him or her the big red kill switch for the network that just takes everything down? Or, you know, if you were going to use that child labor, would you maybe have it Reporting to, you know, a more senior person who could better evaluate things and maybe was just a little more stable in their decision making. And more importantly, would you not mitigate this whole
0: thing in the first place with proper backups?
2: No, absolutely not. I would just stick magic AI SSDs in everything. No more backups needed ever. Problem solved.
1: Right. Cool. Yeah, like it says here, uh, the manufacturer claims that its machine learning algorithms have been proven and can provide protection even against newer ransomware, while detection sensitivity can be dynamically tuned to reduce false positives. So that suggests that there are a lot of false positives and then you can complain and they'll tune it.
2: S can be, must be, G.
1: Yeah, (laughs) so uh, a professor that the uh, LREG talked to from, I think, uh, Nijmegen University It says said that such a ransomware detection needs to be proven in time. This all assumes they properly implemented this. As I found in my previous SSD research, many implementations are lacking. <laughs> That's a very generous way to put it. <laughs> Is it reference implementations that have been audited by an external party are essential to increasing trust in this working correctly? And I agree. It's like, show me code, not just a product. And I'll tell you if I expect this to be
2: able to do anything or not. Can't show you code, Alan. It's AI.
0: Okay, this episode is sponsored by TailScale. Go to TailScale.com. TailScale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, And for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to Tailscale.com to try it for free on up to 100 devices. That's Tailscale.com. Be skeptical of FBI warnings about phone chargers. This is a piece by the EFF where they say that there's a lot of scare stories go around about public charging stations and how you should not plug your phone into it just in case. And they very much play down these fears. And this reminds me of their piece about how you don't need a VPN anymore that we covered, uh, it must have been a couple of months ago at this point. And we were quite... uh, down on that whole piece. So I, I wanted to get your takes on this one. What do you think about the risks of plugging in your phone to random charging points?
2: I don't think it's something that most people should be just consuming themselves with anxiety about. There is always a possibility that something along the lines of bad USB will be able to run a firmware level to exploit on your device's actual USB chipset. That is something that is worth being concerned about. It's a good reason to try to have your own chargers with you wherever you go. I don't know that for most people, it's sufficient reason to just adamantly refuse ever to use a charger that you don't personally own.
1: Yeah, it really comes down to what you're worried about. If it's like they mentioned in the article, one case of, uh, you know, the charger is going to pretend to be a keyboard and type stuff on your phone and just make sure your phone's locked. For a long time, my phone, you plug it into something USB and it's like, if it provides anything more than just power, it doesn't take power until I tell it on the phone that it's okay to communicate with the other end. And so when it does that on something I don't expect, it's always like, oh, that's a bit fishy. But you know, if the worry is that it's just going to exhort your phone and start it on fire because somebody's being malicious, then that's a different thing. And I think the biggest one to look at there is just where is this charger? Is it somewhere where somebody can easily tamper with it or is it in a place where that's less likely to happen. As with all things, you consider the the threat scenario and, and make an informed decision about whether you want to plug into that thing or not. How badly do you need to charge? Is the charger somewhere public where somebody could easily have tampered with it? Or is it somewhere, you know, where somebody's going to notice if somebody's hovering over it, fiddling with it for 20 minutes? When I travel, I always take a portable battery with me
0: and I would be more inclined to plug that into a public charger than my phone. So I'd charge the battery first and then my phone with the battery.
1: Yeah, or, you know, there's USB condoms that make sure nothing other than power gets through Mm -hmm. and other things you can do. I happen to just take a couple of chargers I bought in Japan that will turn an outlet into four USB ports and use those all over the place because it's just convenient to be able to have USB ports
2: wherever I am. I've got a whole grab bag full of these little uh, five or six ports usb chargers that i bought that basically look like little desktop switches but for usb instead of ethernet and uh i have one of those just always in my backpack my backpack at this point kind of boils down to a conference go bag <laughs> all i really need to pack is clothes anymore and grab my backpack on the way out the door and uh, one of those six port chargers along with actually i think i've got two power banks in the go bag at this point point. one relatively nice one and uh that I, you know, actually paid money for, and one swag one that turned out to be better than such things usually are.
1: Well, one of my swag ones from admittedly like five years ago, I found uh, swelling on my desk before my last trip. Ooh. So yeah, that went out to the recyclers. But I was just marveling about my similar setup with my backpack over the weekend when we needed an HDMI cable, and it's, of course, Alan has an HDMI cable in that bag. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Along with USB A to B and A to C and whatever else you might need including a, a five port USB powered switch <laughs> it's only 100 megabits but I can connect a budget computer together with USB powered switch
2: yeah every conceivable way to get to both HDMI and VGA on a uh, projector yeah
1: and it's like I didn't even bring a Mac but I do have the thing to let a Mac connect
0: to HDMI so overall then we're not too down on this idea of being skeptical then we think that public charging points are generally probably going to be okay
1: yeah but basically i'd say it's this the same idea as you know credit card skimmers right like if if the thing looks janky and it's been fudged with maybe you don't want to use it but mm-hmm. honestly the, the credit card skimmer is probably more likely to be something you encounter but yeah I, I don't think anybody should be living in fear of this happening but it's just maybe something to keep in the back of your head and and if you see something fishy maybe find somewhere else to charge
2: yeah. Like, I don't know if, if that guy that you just met at the train station is weirdly insistent that you, you use his <laughs> charger, maybe be concerned about that. But I would not be super paranoid about just, you know, any random charger that you encounter out in the wild. I don't think that, uh, I don't think that fear should occupy a very elevated place in many people's threat model.
1: Yeah. Like short of the, f- really crazy firmware level stuff that, you know, has mostly been demonstrated at places like DEF CON, uh, which is a place where you're not plugging my phone into anything. (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) It's
1: like, I didn't bring my real devices. I brought all burner devices if I'm going to DEF CON. But short of that type of thing, it's just a matter of, like they're saying in the EFF article, keep your phone software up to date. And most of the time, the phone's actually going to give you the choice to decide whether to communicate Mm. with the device. So when I plug my phone into my computer to charge sometimes it's like okay i'm just charging off of it tap here which requires unlocking if you want me to actually expose my storage to the computer and let you copy files or whatever or install software
0: okay this episode is sponsored by linode go to linode.com 25a support the show and get hundred dollars free credit from their award-winning support offer 24 7 365 to every level of user to ease of use and setup It's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy, with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to Linode.com/25a, create a free account, and you get hundred dollars in credit and support the show. That's Linode.com/25a. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com/support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Mike has done. He writes, I recently started better monitoring of all my servers with Zabbix. Zabbix has a special purpose ZFS monitoring template, and on one of my servers, it is alerting for ZFS arc node size is more than 90% dnode max size. Looking at the parameters on the server itself, it looks like the actual DNode cache size is currently larger than the arc limit set in proc, SPL, kstat, ZFS, arcstats. The server is a relatively modest Linode VPS and the dataset is running on their block storage backend. My questions are, is this a major problem? And if so, how would I go about convincing ZFS to reduce this? A quick Google search didn't reveal any obvious solutions.
1: This node limit is not a hard limit. ZFS tries to keep the number of denodes low because they hold other data and keep it locked in the arc. It means that the arc can't shrink when those denodes are holding onto that data. But it's not really a problem. I don't know why Zavix decided to set an alert or, or why they picked the threshold of 90%.
2: That is an excellent question. I was wondering the same thing. Yeah, because ZFS just has a
1: target. Like the, maybe even the word limit for that setting is is kind of dubious because it's possible to go over the limit. I think uh, in the email, Mike actually showed it being at like 103%. But that's okay, right? It's just using that as a, a guideline and it's, you know, it doesn't go to 200 percent because it frees some D nodes. But it also it can't free stuff that you're using. So depending on what you're doing, you might actually even raise that limit depending on how many different files you're working with. Uh, If you have a lot of small files, there could be an advantage to having a larger dnode cache because the dnodes are the bits in ZFS that contain the top-level blocks that then point to the block pointers and, and have all the data. And so caching more of those will let you improve the performance of reading your files, but you don't want so many that it locks all your other data in your cache. I've seen this often with different monitoring softwares doing things like this where they just Maybe they don't know, I guess, and just pick some random thresholds. Because another one I got was, I think it was called Netdata, would always complain that the ZFS thing was almost out of inodes. <laughs>
2: it's
1: like ZFS can't run out of inodes. Yeah, <laughs> it just reports this is how many you have, and it was like, oh, that must be a hundred percent of what's available. So we must be out. And I'm like, no, you're not going to run out of inodes. It's okay. Stop complaining.
2: That would be my big concern. Is I'm just not so sure that Zabbix is uncovering something that's actually a problem. If that were a problem, the problem would be that you weren't caching enough of your denodes, so you were having to hit the bare metal too frequently in order to retrieve metadata. And the fix for that would be, if that is a problem, to increase the value of ZFS arc denode limit. However, if you're not actually experiencing performance problems, I would not go monkeying with that setting just trying to placate Zabbix. Yeah, just tell it
1: to either change the threshold to 110% or... Just stop complaining about that. I don't know if the Zabbix people just looked at every setting that had a limit and, and set thresholds for the, the level above that limit. Because most of the time, the cache you want to be as close to full as possible. That's what caches are for. All
0: right. Well, this somewhat ties in with Andy's question. What do you think of Zabbix and PRTG as a monitoring software compared to Nagios? I'm looking to monitor a small network with a dozen VMs, 50 workstations, and about 10 printers.
2: Well, if you're the kind of person who likes to have your monitoring solution auto-discover things on your network, and then you go in and you know edit them after the fact and try to get them the way that you want them, then Zabbix may very well be the fit that you've been looking for. That's actually the exact opposite of what I want out of monitoring solutions. So Zabbix has never done anything for me. That's actually knocked several large-scale monitoring solutions out for me because I just I don't want auto-discovery. I want it only monitoring the things that I want it to monitor, and I want to tell it <laughs> what those things are and how to monitor them. But if that's not what you're looking for, then uh, Zabbix might be worth a shot. It's pretty easy to get set up.
1: Yeah, I was originally drawn to Zabbix. I admit I haven't used it in like 10 years at this point, but originally drawn to it for how easy it was to set up and so on, but got turned off in the fact that I basically had to custom edit each machine's config in their web interface, whereas Nagios, I wrote a couple of scripts and generated the right configs for all my machines, mm-hmm. and it let me create services and classes and just inherit them and have all the dependencies expressed that way. And so if you are the kind of system who writes config files by hand or like likes editing text files, Nagios is probably the way to go. If you want to use a web GUI to do stuff, Xavix might be a better fit. And then PRTG, I've never actually used because there, I think when I looked, there was no free version. I've, again, not looked at monitoring software in a decade, though. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at
0: 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at joeres.com
2: slash mastodon. I'm on Twitter at jrssnet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.